exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. You're listening to Friday Night Insight here on your Impact 88.9 FM, your hour of community, campus, and some uh, local and state news. And we do have a little bit of traffic news for you. If you're traveling northbound on 127, which was my mistake, watch out. There was a traffic accident there. It's one down to one lane at about a Jolly Road. Uh, so just be careful. I was stuck in traffic for about 20 minutes, so just watch out for that. Uh, coming up in the show, we've got an interview with Jim Forger. Uh, Jim Forger is the dean of MSU's College of music. Um, we've also got an interview coming up with Steve Esquith. Um, Esquith talks about how uh, the new college, um, MSU's residential college in the arts and humanities, um, is similar and different from existing and well-known MSU residential programs such as James Madison and Lyman Briggs. Uh, we also have an interview with Don Holasek. Don Holasek leads the MSU Tourism Center. But first, here's an interview with Trey Rogers, brought to you by Russ White. John Trey Rogers is a professor of Turfgrass Science at MSU. His new book is Lawn Geek, and Rogers offers some tips on mowing, watering, and fertilizing your way to a beautiful lawn. All coming up here on your Impact 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White, today visiting with Trey Rogers, who's professor of crop and soil science at Michigan State University and is out with a book called Lawn Geek. And Trey, first of all, welcome to MSU Today. Thank you, Russ. My pleasure to be here. First of all, what is a lawn geek, and are you one? Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I know I'm a lawn geek. Um, I'm one of these guys that gets up every morning and does think about what's happening with the grass on a daily basis. might not necessarily be lawns, but it's certainly golf courses, athletic fields, and spills over into lawns. If you've ever taken a walk with me, and my wife can testify to this, I'm always looking at the lawns, and if even wanted to and maybe once or twice walked up to the neighbor and tried to give him a couple of pointers but uh, yeah I totally think I'm a lawn geek I think that someone who probably is a lawn geek is someone who really is a perfectionist and have found a place where they can toil and never really get bored sometimes I think a lawn geek could be described as a person who's a competitor because sometimes I see people compete to have the best lawn. And maybe they were a competitor in sports or something else or in uh, the arts. And uh, now they've the, the competitiveness has spilled over in their later years to uh, having the best lawn. So it could be either one of those things and could be something else. But definitely there are lawn geeks out there, and I'm one. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. I think part of what you say in the book is that it maybe isn't as hard as some of the other books or experts will have you believe. I mean, what what are some of the maybe misconceptions or basic overall tips that someone should uh, have to have a good lawn? Well, I think, first of all, you're right about that. Uh, I wouldn't say that other people try to make it overcomplicated. Um, I just think I've tried to come up with a way to, to make what they were trying to be simple continue to be simple and maybe in a little bit more of a, a straightforward way. Um, and I have to give a lot of credit to the person who helped me write this book, Sonia Castleberry, because she did a nice job of, of, that, of doing exactly that, helping me to get this across. If I had to say what was the best thing to do for your lawn, it, it would have to be, it would have to start with the lawnmower. And yes, you're going to spend a lot of time with that lawnmower, and yes, that might be where you spend, you know, several hours uh, during the during the summer. But it is your most important tool, because if you won't scalp the grass and if you'll mow on a frequent basis, you will be doing exactly what that lawn needs in order to be dense and healthy and thick. And that's why we call the one-third rule. We we call it a rule. It's probably just a guideline, but at the same time. We want you to not cut more than a third of the leaf blade off during any single mowing. And if you could just adhere to that rule only throughout the summer, it would the results would be amazing. What about watering, Trey Rogers? That's another thing we hear. Should be morning, should be night, should be a little, should be a lot. What are the watering basics? The idea behind watering is that you need to provide the plant what it needs. So when someone says, how much should you water, I ask the question of what time of year is it? What have been the conditions? Is it hot and dry outside? Is it cloudy and humid? Because each one of these will determine 
how much water the plant needs. Now, when we get into normal summer months, the plant probably uses in Michigan about an inch of water per week. But again, that would probably not kick on till around June 1st and would kick off again probably around August 20th or something like that. Give or take a week depends on the depends on the week. Now, if somebody says to me, "When should we water?" I always say, "I like to water early in the morning." Very simply, it's when the wind's at its least, so your irrigation is going to hit its target. It's not going to water the street. And also, I like to water early in the morning if, so when the water does hit the plant and goes into the soil, the sun comes up and dries off the leaf. And this is a good tactic because it will, no, it will help to suppress diseases. Because if you watered at night, for example, it could stay wet all night. This could be a harboring for potential for diseases, especially during humid summer nights. So those are my tips on watering. Fertilizer is another topic. I think I learned correctly from one of your colleagues, Ron Calhoun, that fall is actually the best time. People have cabin fever in the winter or something, and they get out there and want to blow a lot of fertilizer on the lawn in March, April, May, or whatever. But is fall the best, and what about some fertilizer tips? If you're only going to fertilize once a year, fall is the best time. However, um, you know, oftentimes people do want to fertilize in the spring, and uh, sometimes might not be necessary. Uh, probably the thing that I like to have people do is probably wait as long into May as possible. And in truth, of the matter is, if they fertilized in the fall, they probably could. They can probably wait all the way until uh, the middle of May, even Memorial Day, which is one of the reasons why we love to use what we call the holiday plan, which means fertilize Memorial Day. Then again, maybe 4th of July, depending on uh, whether you can kind of assess that, but certainly around Labor Day. And then fertilize again somewhere between Halloween and Thanksgiving. And it's that late fall fertilization that will give you that nice green look, green up in the spring, and allow you to wait all the way into Memorial Day. So Ron Calhoun is very right, as he always is. So let's recap a little bit. Lawn Geek is your book, Trey Rogers. What are, if you had to really come up with the best couple of three tips, or maybe look at it this way, if you wanted someone to take one thing out of your book, what would it be? Well, first of all, I'd tell you to mow correctly. Don't scalp. Follow the one-third rule. You'll be amazed how much this will help you. Second, water early in the day. And the third thing would be is follow the directions on the back of the fertilizer bag. One thing to remember about that, those directions, is those companies aren't going to gain anything from you uh, misapplying or them or that fertilizer not working because they know you're not going to come back. And they don't make their money off you by you buying one bag of fertilizer. They want you to buy, buy several bags of fertilizer for several years. Now they start to make a profit. So it doesn't do them any good to give you bad information. Plus, always remember, where'd that information come from? came from places like Michigan State University who went out and did that type of research and put it exactly on the same kind of grass that you're using. So trust the bag, follow the directions, and remember twice as much is never twice as good. Any final thoughts, Trey, or uh, anything important we've left out? Well, I, I think there's lots of information that, that people can get, and you can get that information through a lot of websites. We have a nice website at Michigan State. I work with the company Briggs & Stratton to develop a nice website. We call that Yard Doctor, yarddoctor.com. So I'm very comfortable a lot, of our, a lot of our information is correct, just like I'm comfortable that the, the book is correct, Lawn Geek. So. Trey Rogers, crop and soil science professor at Michigan State with his new book, Lawn Geek. And I do happen to know the site, at least at MSU, for a lot more information is a simple one to remember, turf.msu.edu. And this has been MSU Today on Impact Radio. You can check us out on the web at msutoday.com. And I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. 
It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive, but what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sitter Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on The Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White, happy to be back visiting with Dr. Don Holacek, who leads MSU's Tourism Center. Don, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. Well, you're out again. It's that time of year with your tourism forecast, this time for 2007 in Michigan. How does it look? Well, we're thinking uh, we'll do okay. Uh, we're looking for maybe a percent or two increase in, in travel volume and a sales increase in the 4 to 5% range. Very similar to what we forecast last year. And remind us what some of the factors are. What, what can positively impact that forecast and what can negatively impact it? Well, because we're so dependent upon Michigan uh, for our, our, our tourists, uh, something like 60 to 70 percent of our tourists are actually residents of the state. The economy, of course, is is a big uh, uh, I- factor impacting on what happens. Uh, gasoline prices uh, are they get a lot of press, but don't really have that great of an impact, except at the margin. Uh, the big factor uh, this year, or this past year, and probably this year is going to be what Mother Nature does to us. Uh, last year we kind of lost the fall season because of uh, a wet and rainy year. Now uh, we're hoping for a more normal year, and uh, that's one of the key factors is uh, the maybe the weather will cooperate a little more than it did last year. What about the economy? So much is said about it. That must play a huge role. Yeah, it's a, 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 and it's apparently not going to get much better for a while. Uh, but basically, looking at what happened last year, we held up fairly well. Uh, we ended up with an uh, increase in sales in the 4% range uh, and traffic basically flat. And and given that we essentially lost the fall season, uh, the industry held up pretty well. So we're thinking that it's a pretty resilient uh, industry. Uh, People value their leisure time and and assign a pretty high priority to it. Uh, We end up uh, gaining a little bit when people are watching their billfolds. They stay a little closer to home. Uh, Again, we'll benefit from that. I think people have adjusted to the higher gas prices at this point. I guess it'll have to go above three dollars before the media get all excited about it again. So uh, uh, I think uh, we see pretty much the same environment we had last year. We did all right. We get a little help from the weather. I, I think we'll we'll do fine. We have a couple things also going for us this year. Uh, one is we'll be spending more money again on advertising. Uh, last year we got a late start on that, so. Uh, kind of rushed to the market with our advertising and it didn't have the maximum kind of impact. This year we'll be building off of that campaign last year and we'll, we've had a lot of time to put that one, put it together for the, this year. So we'll get more of a boost, I think, from that. And then we'll, we'll see more of the post-Labor Day uh, leg- legislation kicking in because more schools will be now into the post-Labor Day opening uh, uh, mode and parents will have adjusted and start really planning early on doing more in late summer than they had in the past. And Don, are there particular geographic areas of the state that might do better or worse than some others and maybe some activities? Is it casinos and golf and camping? Are there certain things expected to to do better or worse? Well, of course, it all depends on the weather. Uh, What we've basically been seeing is some of the traditional outdoor recreation 
types of activities have been uh, kind of soft on the soft side and it's in part demographics I think uh, kicking in here we have an aging population uh, we also I think are seeing uh, the technology kids are getting more into it uh, and probably less into the outdoors uh, traditional uh, outdoor kinds of activities I suppose when I was growing up, uh, and maybe you, even a young guy like you, we're told when we came home from school, go out and play, and now, you know, go down and play with your computer or do something like that. So I think there's some change going on here that's in part demographic and part technology driven uh, that that's uh, uh, impacting on our traditional outdoor recreation type of activities. You look around, you see a sector that's holding up pretty well uh, in these difficult times is, again, the casino sector. Uh, they're not uh, minting money like they were, but they still are growing year to year from the latest data that, I, that I've looked at. But you get some sense of this, where the, where the down uh, side is, uh, is uh, coming most strongly by looking at things like the Mackinac Bridge crossings which uh, continue to be soft. Uh, I think last year for the year we looked we're looking at a three or four percent decline from the preceding year and we've we have a chart that we put up that each month shows whether it's up or down. We've got arrows pointing up and down and uh, in the last uh, six seven years the vast majority of the arrows on the chart are all pointing down so that trend has been going on for a while and I think it's primarily driven by demographics. We also have to address the issue I think uh, down the road of product development. Uh, we need to be up, up updating our product that we have to offer. Competition is out there investing. We're seeing uh, more high high-end hotels and spas and things coming online our traveler today is much more sophisticated. We've got the internet. We can find out what's out there uh, very quickly. So uh, we have to be working on the product side too. Uh, promotion, of course, is key in the short run and long run product is, is going to carry us or not. Don Holacek of the MSU Tourism Center is our guest on MSU Today on Impact Radio. Don, you and your colleagues have been looking farther ahead too and working on a strategic plan for Michigan's long-term tourism. Talk about sort of how that even came about and what are you finding long-term? Uh, we recognize that this auto industry trouble uh, is going to be uh, likely to be protracted and uh, creates a real challenge for the industry. Uh, we began to communicate with the Michigan Travel Commission and brought together some leaders uh, oh, a little over a year ago and said, well, what can we do here? Can we take some control over our destiny? And uh, there was a sense of, yes, let's, let's give it a shot. So we uh, agreed, MSU, uh, to form a group uh, that would work with the industry uh, and formed a partnership with Travel Michigan uh, to coordinate the uh, an effort of developing a strategic long-term development plan for the industry. Never been done before. Uh, there's been calls periodically for a plan dating back as much as 60 years. Uh, but it was a very complex undertaking. Given the industry uh, is so broad and there's organizations but uh, that represent different sectors, bringing all those folks together around the table uh, to talk and come up with some kind of common uh, plan to address mutual interests uh, was a forbidding challenge. Uh, but the thing, thing that seems to have made it work for us, I think, is uh, uh, technology has been a big factor. Uh, through the internet and web, we've been able to communicate, maintain communications, uh, keep people uh, in tune. Um, back before we had the internet, uh, you'd be looking at uh, snail mail and very slow, slow snail mail and a lot more cost. So we've been able to keep cost in check. 
but then MSU has been in the tourism business, uh, the center, for example, been in the tourism business since 1985, so we've developed a lot of relationships. We know who the players are. They know us. Uh, and so we've been able to capitalize on that relationship plus technology uh, to pull this industry together and come up with what I think is a pretty sound plan for uh, for the future. And we're definitely going to need to be doing something because in the short run we're going to continue to be challenged. So tell us what's in the plan. I mean, what kinds of things are you recommending? Well, bas basically as we looked at all the ideas that we have... Uh, literally stacks and stacks of input. Uh, when we kind of grouped that and looked at it, it kind of fell into three sectors. One was getting organized. The industry is is pretty fractured. Uh, and the, another area was delivering the product. And the third area was basically funding everything. Uh, of course, the number one issue throughout the the process uh, was how do we get more money to promote and uh, the target was 30 million dollars or more state money uh, going uh, you know combining that with about 35 million dollars that's generated by the private sector in terms of room assessments um, and room taxes uh, brings us up to that 65 75 million dollars a year investment in in, in promotion. A uh, healthy sum of money, but given our geographic isolation um, and the competition out there, um, we need to be spending uh, a great deal of money, uh, especially at a time now when much of the press is negative about Michigan. So we're, in effect, uh, fighting a negative publicity campaign with our advertising campaign. Um, so we also looked at the human resources side of it, if we're going to distinguish ourselves from the competition, uh, we have to train people and and have a high quality rating. Uh, the organizational issues are very interesting ones. Uh, how do you bring public sector, private sector, hoteliers, restaurateurs, um, regional associations all together kind of under one umbrella, working together, pulling together, uh, so the organizational issues are going to be really central in this uh, in this plan. Uh, so it's um, we basically identified about eight issues, uh, and then as we looked at them and massaged them a little bit, we found another one, uh, and that one uh, is communications, basically. And given again technology, we're in a position to. Uh, uh, increase the level of communications that, that will be needed to keep everybody in touch on this. Don, fortunately for you, but maybe unfortunately for some of us, you'll be retiring this summer. I guess we'd just like to kind of hear your thoughts on maybe what strikes you about tourism or some of your work over the years and and look ahead for us. Is the future bright for us in, in tourism in Michigan? Well, I think, uh, I don't remember the poet, but somebody said the best best is yet to come, and I'm kind of viewing myself that way, and I think the same for the industry. Um, we just have an amazing uh, resources, the uh, natural resources, the ethnic, cultural resources, um, even, uh, even the climate. If you like a little variety, uh, this is the place we get it. We don't even have to wait a week. Sometimes we get it in a day. So uh, I, I really think the, the future is quite bright here. Um, we, I think as we look at our economy and, and where we're going in the future, uh, we're going to have to diversify the economy. I think tourism will get a little, little more attention than it has in the past in terms of economic development uh, as part of the state uh, uh, long-term economic development plan. Um, obviously, those high-paying auto industry jobs that we... Uh, including the tourism industry, uh, really de depended upon uh, are not going to be coming back in the numbers, at least in the numbers that, that they were in the past. So things will be flattening out and uh, tourism becomes more attractive in that kind of environment. Um, I, I guess some things that uh, strike me is how resilient this business is. Uh, we it's really, as you look, the last two or three years that we looked at putting forecasts together, we put up our list of positives, our list of negatives, and uh, the list of negatives is 
getting longer and longer and longer and longer and and you're trying to struggle to find something positive to kind of offset that but i think really what it is is that the people just has a have a strong uh, demand for leisure they value their vacations they value their weekends they value their family time and even when things get tough on the economic side uh, this is a pretty inelastic product and being that uh, they they don't give it up easily uh, gas prices uh, be damned they just you know full speed ahead so uh, and we've seen that time and time again over over my career you see all these negatives out there but the industry just seems to float to the top Don, anything important we've left out or some final thoughts? No, except uh, I'm kind of like the general. I'm not going to kind of disappear at once. I'm just going to fade away. Uh, I, I expect to stay engaged in working on projects uh, for as long as God willing and the sun rises and those kinds of things. Don, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Don Holacek, director of MSU's Tourism Center, and there's a lot more on the web at tourismcenter.msu.edu. And for more MSU Today, you can visit us on the web at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Today I'm visiting with Steve Esquith, who's the dean of MSU's forthcoming residential college in the arts and humanities. It's called the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. And what that means is two things. One, a residential college is a place where students have their classes, it's where they have their rooms, where they live, where they eat. It has its own dining facilities, and also where the faculty have their offices and where they have their classrooms and workshops and, and seminar rooms and public performing spaces. It's an all-purpose facility for living and learning. That's the residence part of the residential college. The arts and humanities part is also inclusive. What it means is that students will be studying the visual and performing arts. They'll be studying history. They'll be studying various cultures and have immersion activities in world languages. They'll be debating ethical issues that cut across cultures and cut across time. They'll be involved in their own performances. They'll be involved in their own gallery exhibitions. So it'll be both a place where they study and where they present their own work and creative activities uh, to other people. It'll also be open to the rest of the university. It won't be a cocoon. It won't be a, a, uh, an insular activ- uh, program. It'll be a place that where the, the doors swing both ways and the windows are always open. Uh, we want to invite community partners. We want to invite other programs and departments, students who are not majors in the residential college. So we see a lot of opportunities for partnering, for collaborating, and for generating new activities in the arts and humanities. 
People may be familiar with existing residential colleges at MSU. James Madison and Lyman Briggs are very well known. Similar or, or compare? Talk about how they're the same or different. Mm -hmm. Well, there, there's an important similarity that has to do with what I said originally about their residential living and learning function. Uh, like Lyman Briggs and James Madison, this is a place where all of those activities go on under one roof. They're different from Lyman Briggs and James Madison in two respects. One in terms of the content, where Briggs is mostly in the natural sciences and Madison is in the policy sciences. We're working on the right side of the brain, if you will. <laughs> and they're also different in, we're also different in the sense that our curriculum is structured somewhat differently. Uh, in Madison, there are several majors within the college, and students can dual major within Madison College, uh, but there's no single James Madison major. In Lyman Briggs, most students have joint majors. They have a major within uh, a regular department, and then they, if they so choose, can have a Briggs major in um, the sociology of science, or what used to be called science and technology studies. Our approach is to have one major within the college. So if you're in the residential college, that's the box you check for your major if you're applying to MSU. And within that major, there's a core curriculum, uh, both in the first year, students take five courses uh, that are similar, and then in the second year and the third year, there's also a structured curriculum for uh, all students. On the that's the foundation, and then from that foundation, students branch off. Uh, we call them elective pathways, and it's through those pathways that students can then choose an additional major. They can choose a specialization, an interdisciplinary specialization, or they can choose a minor. We've been very uh, happy with the speed with which music and theater and art and art history have created or are in the process of creating new minors for our students who want as their elective pathway pathway to work in those other programs. So we have a core curriculum, one major, and then five or six elective pathways that connect students to these other programs on campus. You might say it's a combination of the Madison model and the Briggs model. Right? We have one major unlike the four or five majors in Madison, but uh, we have a core curriculum, as Madison does, which extends up beyond the first year. Like Briggs, we're connected to other programs in a very systematic way through our elective pathways, um, but we, uh, we have only one major rather than the multiple majors that Briggs students would have. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White visiting with Steve Esquith, who is the dean of MSU's new coming, not quite online, residential college in the arts and humanities. And I'm curious, Steve, take us back a little bit. How did MSU see the need for this and, and sort of talk about its, its place in sort of modern education? Because isn't the liberal arts degree sort of on its way back? But I guess a little bit about how this fits in with boldness by design and just you know the, the world grant and those kinds of things right I think that that you're right there is a, uh, a sense in which liberal education and the collegiate experience is coming back students undergraduate students who pay uh, you know, tuition at MSU are concerned about you know what kinds of opportunities do we have at MSU for exciting new undergraduate initiatives boldness by design is committed at, uh, at the very top of the list of its commitments to enhancing the undergraduate student experience. The, uh, the new residential college, I think, is the, the leading edge of that enhancement of the, new, of the undergraduate experience at MSU. And our goal is to, uh, is to be a kind of catalyst for undergraduate education across the board. We'll be collaborating with the other residential colleges in a variety of different programs that have already uh, received external funding from the Association of American Colleges and Universities. We'll col be collaborating, as I said, with music and art and theater uh, and new degree programs. Where did this all come from? I think it came from, one, the students' desire to see the liberal arts be on a par 
with the natural sciences and the social sciences, and also the vision of President Simon, who was the one who said, you know, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to find a way to provide our undergraduate students who are interested in the performing arts and visual arts and history in ethics and literature and creative writing to have the same kind of residential uh, living learning experience. We know that that's where students learn best, where they have contact with faculty, where they have small classes, where they have opportunities to generate new ideas. Cognitive scientists have told us that you remember and you understand best when you generate ideas. And the only way for students to be generating ideas and testing out their own uh, views is in a, a context in which there is that kind of interaction with faculty and those kinds of opportunities for creative and uh, creative activity by students. Let's talk some nuts and bolts. Where will it be? Uh, sort of how many students are you looking to have in the program? You're, I assume you're admitting some now hiring faculty. Just sort of an update. Uh huh. Well, that's a good question. It uh, it's right between the Snyder Residence Hall and the Phillips Residence Hall, which is over on the east side of campus, uh, just off of Bogue Street. That those two residence halls are being remodeled this year, so students weren't living in the residence halls. So we'll have spanking new dorm rooms, as they used to call them, uh, and between the two dorm rooms is the, the new structure, which goes down several floors and goes up three floors. It has a large multi-purpose performing space. It has um, music practice rooms. It has creative arts workshops. It has a gallery overlooking a two-story uh, atrium where the dining facility will be. We want the we want and we believe the college will be a, a vibrant place. Uh, we're in the process now of both admitting students and hiring faculty. Uh, the admissions office has been very aggressive in terms of getting the word out and and working with us, as have the admissions officers in Lyman Briggs and James Madison. Uh, we have over 150 applications to the college at this point, and the admissions office has processed approximately 100 admissions. So now the, uh, the next step is to kind of move those folks who have been admitted uh, here to MSU uh, and have them participate in the, the early orientation program in the summer, build their major, and come in the fall. Our goal is to have 125 to 150 new students here in the fall. A few of those will be transfer students, but the majority, the vast majority, will be students new to MSU. The faculty is being hired uh, at this moment as well. We have faculty in history, faculty in art, faculty in world languages, faculty in uh, the study of culture and anthropology and sociology, and we're working with art and music and theater again uh, to hire people in those areas who would uh, participate both in the college and in those departments. We also have a grant from the uh, MSU Graduate School to hire uh, 10 graduate fellows, doctoral students, who will work as mentors and tutors with, gradu with undergraduates in the program. Uh, these are graduate students in digital writing and rhetoric, graduate students in history, graduate students in uh, French, classics, Italian, and uh, less commonly taught languages. And their role will be not to uh, work as teaching assistants in large lecture courses. All our classes will be taught by faculty. But these graduate students who've expressed a particular interest in working with undergraduates in a residential setting will work as mentors in a creative workshop, say a poetry workshop, or tutors in a world language program uh, if students are interested in a, a study abroad program and a graduate student has a, a special expertise in that uh, world culture or the uh, language that the study abroad program will stress. The graduate student will be a co-leader in the study abroad program. We also have what we call study away programs, which uh, take students off campus but not uh, to other countries. 
working in uh, neighborhoods in Lansing and rural communities in this area, in Detroit and Chicago with neighborhood theater groups, with neighborhood uh, community uh, organizations, and graduate students oftentimes have a, a special expertise in those areas. Uh, our goal is to to bridge the gap between graduate and undergraduate education through these special fellowships that the, the graduate school has so generously uh, provided to the college. If someone listening to us is intrigued about MSU's College of Residential College for Arts and Humanities, what's the best way for them to get some more information? Uh, while the college isn't uh, online in the sense of being open for business today. It is online. Uh, we have a website, www.rcah.msu.edu, or they can email us directly, uh, rcah at msu.edu. Uh, the website has a webcam, which will take them through the building as it's being sort of constructed. It also has a fairly detailed description of the core curriculum, the first-year uh, classes, including a first-year seminar that all students will take with a faculty instructor, instructor, and um, either through the website where they can click to an email connection or directly uh, by the email address that I've given you, uh, they can get in touch with us, make an appointment, come in, talk to we have faculty and advisors already here on staff talk to them about the program. We have a big uh, inaugural event we're planning for our first year. The Snyder and Phillips dormitories will be open for business in August, August 15th, uh, in fall 2007. In January 2008 will be the gala uh, inaugural opening uh, for the uh, uh, college uh, facilities in that complex and we're working with the Wharton Center and the School of Music and Art and Theater to bring in some top-notch talent and engage the students in uh, in the process too. So we want the inaugural to have student involvement. That's why we're not going to perform it for students uh, in August, but we're going to perform it with students in January. And our headliner will probably be uh, members of the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater who will be with us here in Wharton at Wharton in January and will be coming over to the residential college to lead us in uh, in an inaugural uh, uh, event. Dean Esquith, uh, anything important we've left out or just some final thoughts you want to leave listeners on the residential college in the arts and humanities? Right. I think there is a, an important uh, question that needs to be addressed, and that is career development for students. Where where does a degree in the residential college in the arts and humanities point? What are the the opportunities? What are the things that are are uh, are out there as future career choices, uh, job prospects, employment? Uh, I think that there are three ways in which the uh, the college prepares students. And all three of these ways, to me, uh, are important for our region, for our state, uh, and for the, the global economy that we participate in. So I, I think we're, we're opening a new door for students that is important both for them and for the rest of the, the community that within which we live. Those three areas I would describe in the following way. One is many of the students who come through this program will be prepared, very well prepared, for future academic work, both at the university level, in research institutions, and at the K through 12 level in teaching capacities uh, in the areas of uh, art and culture, history, world languages. We we believe and uh, and we think. Uh, students will will sense that this is this is true that the direction of those academic areas uh, is moving towards greater interdisciplinary collaboration uh, greater awareness of global connections and so that the program for us 
is a program that is in close harmony with the direction of the very best graduate programs at MSU and elsewhere. So this is this is a program that offers students a uh, a view and a, a uh, an entry point into the very best work that's being done in graduate programs in the arts and humanities. A second group of students, I think, will be attracted to the program are students who, let's just say, uh, are very much committed to the to the collective or the public good. These are students who have been involved in outreach activities, in community service activities in high school and want that to continue to be an important part of their education at the university. All of our students will take eight credits of civic engagement work and that can include, that will include things like community service learning but also things like uh, public art performances and you know community murals and creative writing programs and literacy projects in in refugee projects within the city of Lansing so I think students who are committed to activism in that sense in a, in a very general sense will find that this this college is a good preparation for a career in those areas whether it's local or global or both the third group of students I think are our students I referred to the right side of the brain before are students who are uh, who find pleasure and uh, satisfaction in in the moment in the performing arts whether they be the visual arts or installation arts or theater and dance in a more conventional sense um, many of our students who come to MSU have had that kind of experience in high school but for one reason or another they've decided that majoring in those performance areas is not all that they want to do as college students to really commit yourself to you know piano performance or a choral ensemble major uh, is very time-consuming and it has to be in order to achieve the kind of proficiency one needs to have a career in those areas but many other students want to have that as part of their education and also major in other areas major in social work major in criminal justice major in uh, a world language and for those students I think we provide that kind of blend of performance and other ac academic experiences so that they can go on possibly in in education but also working for a local community theater founding a new community theater company and being the manager of the company or helping to build a new museum in a you know in a small rural community or working in a major metropolitan area you know as a uh, arts and culture organizer uh, so we think that we provide those students with um, with opportunities in terms of career let me use a metaphor to sort of end that uh, pitch uh, I think students in the arts and humanities uh, ought to be ought to think of their life after college as rock climbing not climbing a ladder right that there aren't too many career ladders left and this isn't true just for the arts and humanities it's true in the sciences the natural sciences and the social sciences there aren't single career ladders where one starts at the bottom and simply climbs straight to the top you need a kind of agility and a field of vision that's much broader and the kind of stamina that rock climbing takes if you've done some rock climbing you, you know it's exhausting it's also very gratifying and so our goal is to is to educate rock climbers in the arts and humanities uh, people who will have that kind of exhilaration and spirit of, uh, of discovery as they pull up over the top and um, and we think that uh, the residential college is not just a college where you can enjoy your four years and then try to figure out what am I going to do for a living, but rather build the, the strength and stamina and skills and agility uh, to pursue that uh, a future career as a rock climber. Well said, sir. Steve Esquith is Dean of Michigan State University's Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. And again, for a lot more information online, it's RCAH. 
www.msu.edu. And I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. And we're back here with your Friday Night Insight here on your Impact 88.9 FM. We've got some interesting news coming from the Capitol. Representative John Garfield was arrested for drunk driving earlier this week. This is the Rochester Hills rep's second offense. His first offense was in December of 2005. Actually, a second-time drunken driving violation are punishable by a a fine of up to $1,000 and one year in jail. Um, As of right now, uh, Mr. Garfield was not in session on Thursday, so it remains to be seen what's going to happen with that. Coming up on your impact, we've got an interview with Jim Forger. Jim Forger is a dean of MSU's College of Music. The School of Music has become the College of Music at MSU, and Forger talks about the difference between a school and a college and his details of his goals for the new MSU College of Music here on your Friday Night Insight on your Impact 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Happy to be visiting with Jim Forger today. And Jim, let me be one of the first to greet you as Dean Forger rather than Director Forger, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Russ. Great to be chatting with you. It indeed is an exciting time for the faculty students uh, in the newly formed College of Music at MSU. That's why we're visiting with Dean Forger today. Uh, MSU's uh, acclaimed School of Music is now MSU's College of Music. And explain to us why that's sort of important and how it all came about. Well, I think... uh, uh, several years ago, former Provost Luana Simon, now our president, uh, raised a discussion on campus regarding possible reconfiguration of liberal arts and learning on the MSU campus. And our faculty proposed a configuration as an independent college, which more uh, accurately reflects, I think, the size and scope, the stature, the achievement of our unit compared to peers across the nation. Uh, we've had significant uh, and incremental investment in the school, which has led to the creation of distinct and dynamic programs led by superb faculty. And those individuals have been responsible for recruiting an ever-increasing student body in terms of quality, quantity, achievement, and it this distinction uh, and in and. Uh, administrative configuration, I think, more readily reflects uh, our stature across uh, the United States. Talk about the mission, then, of the college. What are your your goals for the College of Music? Well, we have several goals. Uh, Primary among them is to develop one of uh, the best possible professional schools that we can muster. Uh, This would include Uh, you can't do everything in life and we recognize that and we aim to be selective in where we seek to achieve national excellence. Uh, We have areas of performance in music therapy and uh, music education that uh, and jazz studies in the forefront and uh, among uh, we, we are very proud to try to bring together excellence in performance together with the reality that performers are all music educators. We have a first rank music education program, but beyond those in that program, we seek to have a number of our students from across disciplines active in outreach and engagement in this community and beyond. Uh, We are instituting a new office, an associate dean for outreach and engagement, Uh, an individual named Rhonda Buckley, who is one of the nonprofit leaders in Washington, D.C. currently, and she was going to lead us into a new era of uh, collaborations uh, in the greater Lansing area. Uh, She will be the executive director of the Community Music School, and we have some new exciting developments, uh, interactions with partners in the city of Detroit. An additional portion of our mission is uh, our the contribution that we have an opportunity to make on this campus, a large campus with 44,000 students. Uh, Next year is going to be the Year of the Arts uh, at MSU, and the School of Music, together with our colleagues in the other arts, aim to make a difference. One of our responsibilities needs to be the opportunity to provide uh, music lessons, uh, performance opportunities, and classes that actively get folks uh, uh, creating music or involved in attending performances and studying and understanding music. So I think that that can make a difference in the lives of people, and we have the opportunity to do that on the MSU campus, and that's one of our 
challenges and one of the things that we look forward to developing. Expound on that a bit because outreach is so important to the mission of the entire university. Talk about the outreach initiatives you'll be growing here. Well, we, uh, I think to make a difference in the lives of individuals from uh, uh, very young people with our distinctive early childhood program through uh, youngsters in public school through those uh, in in adult education uh, one can make that difference through the arts uh, in sequential learning and there are many arts institutions that have the ability to periodically share concerts which is really exposing people to an art form. I think what really makes a difference is the sequential instruction, and we are planning to develop programs. We currently have programs, for instance, in Detroit with Jazz Studies, where uh, advanced students and faculty mentors uh, teach uh, 12 weeks each semester in a Saturday program uh, with inner-city youth uh, developing their reading skills, their improvisation skills, their compositional skills, uh, and uh, that uh, to me can make a difference in in the lives of folks. They need to gain uh, skills and uh, concepts and uh, a whole range of of abilities which uh, is introduced gradually over time and uh, I think that we have a a great commitment to uh, doing that through through the art of music. Do most uh, students that graduate with a degree in music stock the orchestras of the world and the jazz quintets and whatnot, or do they teach, or what do most people do with degrees? I think that uh, there are a wide-ranging uh, uh, set of uh, opportunities out there. Uh, within music education, uh, we have a placement rate through uh, the undergraduate program and graduate programs of 100%. So there are a lot of people that are joining university faculties uh, and providing excellence in music education through the public schools. On the performance side, there are numbers of folks who uh, put an, a variety of things together, from performing in orchestras to um, uh, playing chamber music uh, and also teaching. I think it's interesting to note that many of the orchestras throughout the United States uh, particularly in urban areas, are becoming uh, the educational institution in that city. And there are a new set of skills that are required uh, for uh, folks to make a real impact. Uh, one can reflect on Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. They're a, f- a fine performance organization in the city of, of New York, and they travel the, the world, but they also are actively engaged in um, in residencies and providing outreach uh, uh, and, and education. We're fortunate to have uh, three distinctive musicians on our full-time jazz faculty, Rodney Whitaker, former bass player of Lincoln Center Jazz, uh, Wes Anderson, who uh, warm daddy Anderson, who was Winton's Marcellus's uh, s- uh, lead alto for 17 years, and Derek Gardner, who played lead trumpet for Harry Connick Jr., uh, all actively involved in outreach through those national organizations and now uh, working together uh, as members of the professors of jazz at MSU, performing together, but also providing a great deal of outreach and sequential instruction contact with uh, students uh, throughout Michigan. Dean Forger, summarize for us again, if you will, then why it's important that it's a College of Music now, and, and what would you like people to know, to take away and know about the College of Music at MSU? I think we have a very distinctive college that blends the best in performance, the best in the practical application uh, uh, of uh, teaching and commitment to student learning, whether they be music ed majors or whether they be be uh, performance majors. Also, we have a uh, the Pioneer Music Therapy Program that's that uh, works with a, a very distinctive population of, of uh, uh, individuals with a variety of challenges. I think that we have a fabulous faculty that has led programmatic uh, uh, advances, and uh, we believe that uh, our community uh, uh, of musicians can make a difference in this state and in the nation. That's Dean Jim Forger of MSU's College of Music, and there's a lot more information on the web at music.msu.edu. And please uh, visit MSU Today on the web at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. 
we're back here with your Friday Night Insight. That was Russ White's interview with Jim Forger. Uh, Jim Forger, if you didn't catch that, was the dean or is the dean of MSU's College of Music that was recently converted to a college from a school and his summary of the differences of a school and college. And we're just about out of time here um, on your Friday Night Insight, but just a little information for those horticulture students out there that are looking for something to do this weekend. Planet Student Career Days are going to be held at MSU and actually are underway. Uh, the Professional Land Care Networks, or PLANET, uh, Student Career Days is basically an opportunity for horticulture students to flex their skills and their horticultural muscles in front of those uh, professional um, representatives that are out there. And for some more information, you can check out www.studentcareerdays.org, and that's going on all weekend. I'm going to pass over the torch now to uh, flashback because, oh, it's about 8 o'clock right now. Uh, stay tuned next week. Uh, Friday Night Insight's coming back your way from 7 to 8 p.m. as well as every Friday. Um, so up next, Friday, uh, we've got Friday Flashback here on your Impact 88.9 FM.